Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. In 1965, the Reverend James Reeb was attacked on the streets of Selma, Alabama, and savagely beaten. Three white men were arrested today in Selma, Alabama, on charges of assault with intent to murder three white ministers on a downtown street corner in Selma, Alabama, last night. Days later, Reeb died of head injuries in a Birmingham, Alabama hospital. Three men were tried for the murder of the white Unitarian minister from the North, all ultimately acquitted, and no one was ever convicted. More than 50 years later, two journalists from Alabama returned to that cold case and discovered a number of details and a lot about the way that the South remembers Jim Crow. Andrew Beck-Grace is co-host of NPR's White Lies podcast. Hello, Andrew. Hey, how are you? And Chip Brantley is co-host of the podcast as well. They're both joining me from WBHM in Birmingham. Hey, Chip. Hello. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, thank you for being with us. Give us a little background on who was James Reeb. James Reeb was a Unitarian minister uh, who came down in March of 1965 after Bloody Sunday. Saw the footage of Bloody Sunday when Alabama state troopers attacked uh, civil rights uh, marchers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And was just outraged, like many Americans who saw it, was outraged. And he um, he came down to Selma a couple of days later to 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 uh, sort of bear witness and to march alongside those those marchers. As you mentioned, while he was in Selma, he was uh, attacked, hit on the head. Uh, he was uh, taken to Birmingham to a hospital, and he died a couple of days later. And his death really just. Uh, was a huge deal in 1965 in March. Uh, the you know the eyes of the nation were already on Selma because of Bloody Sunday, and then this white minister who came down from Boston was attacked and killed, mm. and so just you know his death was was protested around the nation. The president invoked his name uh, when introducing the Voting Rights Act a couple of weeks later, and then as you mentioned, there was a trial later that year, and and uh, three men were acquitted for the crime. Well, we want to go through that. And this was just, he had just arrived in Alabama on this March 9th night in 1965. What had he been doing that night when he was attacked? Basically, what happened is after Bloody Sunday, there was this call that Dr. King sent out to all the the clergy throughout the country and the different denominations asking for ministers of conscience to come to Selma to support. So people began arriving throughout the day. Reeb actually left from Boston Monday night and arrived in Selma on early Tuesday morning. And that day there had actually been a smaller, essentially the same path as the as the march that had resulted in Bloody Sunday, but that was actually led by Dr. King. And that, that march becomes known as Turnaround Tuesday because Dr. King leading the march gets to the phalanx of state troopers at the same place where the beating had taken place. And they say, you do not have the right. And Dr. King knows that he's waiting for the federal judge to give them the right to actually continue the march on to Montgomery, but in the minutia of, of civil rights history, it's a kind of a contentious moment because a lot of civil rights demonstrators had come basically like Reeb from Boston and, and were ready and willing to put their bodies, sacrifice themselves essentially. But Dr. King knew the optics of that, and so he turned around, and so the rest of the day they're sort of hanging out. And later that evening, uh, Jim Reeb gets together with two other Unitarian ministers whom he's he knows one fairly well and the other is, is just a colleague that he's met a few times. And they go downtown to, to eat dinner not far from the church where all the civil rights organizing had been happening. Mm. So that's really that's what had happened that night. They, they asked where to go, and someone from another civil rights organization said, do you want to eat with your kind or do you want to eat with the 
African Americans in Selma, uh, and so they say we want to. We're here to integrate. We're here to. We're here to fight for African American voting rights. So we'd like to eat in a black restaurant. Mm. So that's what they do. And word of his condition after he was beaten with two other men uh, traveled very quickly. Just an hour after the attack, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was in the pulpit of the Brown AME Church in Selma, delivering an update on his condition. You know, things happen here today concerning the three Unitarian ministers who were beaten about an hour or so ago. I understand one was uh, so brutally beaten that he had to be rushed to the hospital in Birmingham with a possible brain concussion. So why couldn't he be treated in Selma? When the three ministers were attacked on the street, uh, Jim was, again, hit with his club in the head and, and fell to the ground and then was kicked and punched, and the other men were were kicked and punched. And then it was over pretty quickly. And so when they, they um, stumbled to a nearby headquarters of a civil rights group uh, where, the, you know, everybody there, Reeb's companions and the, and the two people in the office sort of looked at, at Jim, who was was mumbling and a little kind of out of it and in and out and um, decided that he needed to see a doctor right away. So they, because these guys are, these are, they're all, these three, these three ministers are white guys, but because they're there in defense of of African-American voting rights, they're essentially unwelcome in the, in the sort of white establishment of Selma, including its medical facilities. So they're taken to a nearby health clinic, a black-owned health clinic, where a doctor examines Jim and very quickly uh, determines that he needs to see a neurosurgeon. And there is not a neurosurgeon in Selma. And so they, uh, the closest one is in Birmingham, which is a, a couple hours away. And so they decide he's got to get to Birmingham as soon as possible. And what happens on the way to Birmingham? So they get in this ambulance and they start to drive up the road toward Birmingham and they're they're actually followed by by an onlooker essentially and they get a they get a flat tire on the way to Birmingham just right outside city limits a mile or two outside city limits so they turn around um, because the the radio ambulance or excuse me the radio phone in the ambulance does not work so they they turn around to a radio station where one of the ambulance drivers had had worked before um, to use the phone so they call and get another ambulance who it takes 15 20 minutes. Um, um, for them to for them to get the other ambulance there, maybe half an hour at most, um, and then they swap Reeb's body out and 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 get him to Birmingham, just really you know on two wheels almost going around curves because they spent they 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 basically made a trip in a in roughly an hour and a half that would have usually taken over two hours. Um, so they get him to Birmingham, but the, by the time he's here, that an injury like that is so severe and it's it manifests itself in the in the hours after the attack that it was it was almost too late to do anything. They they did perform surgery on him, but he was he was essentially comatose after after the ambulance ride. Hmm. And then another minister called Reeb's wife, told her she had to make she should make arrangements to come from Boston to Alabama. She arrived, media flocked in the hospital for an interview, and she did reluctantly agree to speak to them. Here is a reporter speaking with Marie Reeb. Do you think the cause for which your husband came to Selma was worth it? I don't feel that I can answer that for myself. I can only answer for Jim that uh, any consequences that might occur did, did merit this. Local civil rights activists told Marie that the world was there watching, and the reporter who covered the story told you he knew then, quote, this is not just some guy getting beaten. Why was this different? 
the civil rights movement had gained so much attention over the previous years. Uh, you had, you know, if you want to really step back after the after the Montgomery bus boycott, people began to pay attention to to the plight of civil rights activism and the fight for 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 the dismantling of Jim Crow and then ultimately the fight for voting rights. And you've got 1961, the Freedom Rides, and 1963, the Children's March here in Birmingham, and and then uh, you have the 16th Street Church bombing, which just outraged so many Americans and could not believe the brutality that, that was happening because of this movement. And really, in March of 65, when Bloody Sunday happens, there are cameramen on the bridge that day, and the way that those images are telegraphed around the world uh, really fundamentally changes um, the optics of the of the of the move for voting voting rights. So the the eyes of, of Selma, excuse me, the eyes of the world are already re- really looking at Selma. So when Reeb is attacked, he becomes this proxy for everything that's that's wrong with the the southern states essentially stif- stifling the black vote. And so he he manifests himself, and in, in, in so many people later call and refer to him as a martyr. And it really just happens almost instantaneously that this white man's death becomes emblematic of, of a need for a larger structural change. That's Andrew Beck Grace. He and Chip Brantley are Alabama-based journalists and co-hosts of the new NPR podcast, White Lies, which investigates a civil rights cold case and the stories that people have and continue to tell about it. Well, President Lyndon B. Johnson also knew that this was quite a different case. Here he is speaking with one of his advisors. This is from tape of his phone calls at the White House. This minister's going to die, isn't he? Yes, sir. Is he already dead? No, sir. What time do you think he'll die? They tell me that he could stay alive uh, for another uh, 24 or 36 hours under these mechanical things. But, uh, I think he'll probably die early in the morning. I've arranged uh, with the local authorities down there that uh, if when the minister dies, they'll file first-degree murder charges within an hour. You two just dug up some incredible archival audio for this podcast. I'd love to play one more uh, clip. This is First Lady Lady Bird Johnson reflecting on the death of Reverend Reeb. When the news had come that the Reverend Reeb had died, Lyndon and I excused ourselves for a moment. A helpless, painful moment. We talked to Mrs. Reeb, but what is that to say? We went upstairs a little past ten, but we could hear the congressional guests still laughing and the music still going below, and out in front, the chanting of the civil rights marchers. What a house, what a life. Well, that was not the end of the president and first lady's attention to this case. They loaned the Reeb family an Air Force plane to travel home to Boston from Birmingham. LBJ then invoked his name when he was proposing to Congress the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Expressing outrage over a white man from the North being killed, as there was later with Jonathan Daniels, when we know from EJI research that thousands of African-American men had been and women had been lynched during Jim Crow, hundreds beaten in civil rights actions. So why focus on the death of one white man? Yeah, this is Chip. Um, it's it's you're right. I mean, there are thousands of 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 people killed during that era black men uh, black women killed during that era many of their names we won't, we don't know and we'll never know uh and jim reeb's the life and death is no more no less important than those lives and those deaths you know as, as andrew mentioned earlier the 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 fact that the attention of the world was already on selma is is partly to explain uh why his death led to 
this outrage around the country. But it's also important to note that just a few weeks before, a, a local black civil rights worker named Jimmy Lee Jackson, who lived in the nearby town of Marion, was uh, was shot by an Alabama state trooper, died um, just a little over a week later, just a week or so before uh, before Bloody Sunday. And in fact, Jimmy Lee Jackson's death really was the, ca- the catalyst that led to the march that would become Bloody Sunday. Mm-hmm. He was shot in mid-February, died in late February, and when he died... Civil rights leaders just felt like we have to do something. We this this is different. We have to we have to act now. And they planned to march from Selma to Montgomery to protest uh, in the Capitol, and that of course would become Bloody Sunday. So Jimmy, Lee, there's a sort of link, you know, between Jimmy Lee Jackson and Jim Reeb. They're very much connected uh, in the story and in time. It's interesting to, to to talk to people who were there during that time who who really thought a lot later about the reaction to Jim Reeb's death and to Jimmy Lee Jackson's death. And locally, Jimmy Lee Jackson's death was a, was a huge deal. It really, again, catalyzed the movement there. Um, but nationally, it, t- it did. It took the death of this white man to really draw the eyes of the country to the effort that was, that was going on in, in Alabama. And this story continues to unfold episode by episode, including the arrest and trial of those who were accused of of beating and actually murdering uh, Reverend Reeb. Who were these three men who were arrested? Two of them were brothers, uh, Stanley Hoggle and, and Naaman O'Neill Hoggle, whom everyone called Duck. And then there was another man, Elmer Cook. Um, and they were car dealers in town. And uh, Elmer Cook was a, essentially a loan shark, um, loaned money to mostly African-American clients uh, and with just extraordinarily high interest rates. Um, and they were, they were kind of for all intents and purposes, sort of thugs in town um, when they, the day after they were, the day after they were arrested for the attack, the Selma Times Journal actually ran their, their rap sheets on the, on the cover of the, the paper. And I can't remember exactly how many times, but I think it was over, it was over 25 or 30 times that Elmer Cook had been arrested for assault and battery and a variety of other charges. So these folks were not the, uh, they were not from, you know, Sterling families there in, in Selma. They were, they were ruffians in many ways. Um, and and in, I think for many people in Selma, it was unsurprising the the amount of white anger that had been unleashed at, during Bloody Sunday that had been seen by the Sheriff Clark, Jim Clark's uh, posse that, that, that had beaten some of those marchers on the bridge and just the level of animosity that the that these voting these folks advocating for voting rights really represented to the power structure in town. Um, and I think that's, that partly accounts for the violence that, that was seen there. There was a ton of harassment and a ton of violence, um, and it, it had really sort of bo- boiled over by then. Yeah, so the mood in town uh, may not have been like the newspaper. Um, showing their rap sheets, it was much more protective of the way that life had been. And the three tried for murder um, in 1965 in December of that year. The trial is fascinating, but there wasn't an official trial transcript. First of all, why not? And how did you reconstruct it? Yeah, it's really interesting that, that the, you know, in some ways, the fact that there's not a trial transcript, we... we uh, I think I can safely say we have we have um, chased down every possible lead to find it. it. In some ways, not surprising because it was an acquittal, and, and acquittals often because there's no appeal, there's no there's no imperative legal imperative to keep uh, have it to order a trial transcript. But l- because it was such a high profile case in '65. Uh, you know, there was a lot of press coverage. And also, the Unitarians from up north, they sent down two legal observers, or, or two observers, one of whom was a lawyer, to just 
basically cover the thing extensively to write their impressions of the trial. Uh, and they're actually really beautiful artifacts. These two, these two reports that these Unitarians made. They're they are blow by blows of the trial, but they're also just really beautiful portraits. I say beautiful. They're really well observed, well written portraits of the people during that time in Selma and the place in that time. Uh, and then we were able to kind of come up with some grand jury records here and there. We looked through all these different. Uh, storage sheds and archives and courtroom basements and uh, jailhouse storage units, like everywhere, to kind of piece together as much as we could. The DOJ and the FBI had lots of people on the ground in Selma during this time. At the time, there were still federal civil rights charges looming uh, against against these guys. So the feds were, the DOJ was, was entertaining the idea of prosecuting these guys on federal charges. So they had observers at the trial as well. So we took all of that. I mean, the DOJ file is I don't know, Andy, thousands of pages. That's over a thousand pages. So we, we, uh, we took all of that and we essentially reconstructed the trial uh, using all those, all those materials. Chip Branley, Andrew Beckray, stay with us, co-hosts of NPR's new podcast, White Lies. We're going to continue the conversation after the break about their investigation into a civil rights cold case. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott, and we're speaking with the Alabama-based journalists Chip Brantley and Andrew Beck Grace. Their latest project is a new NPR project called White Lies, which they are co-hosts of. We just heard some of their archival footage and learned about some of their investigation into the, the murder of uh, Reverend Reeb from Boston when he was in Selma, Alabama. Three local men in Dallas County were charged with his murder. The eyes of the nation were on them, DOJ people on the ground, newspaper reporters on the ground. But the prosecutor still was told that he had a weak case. This is in a case when three men were beaten on the sidewalk on an evening in Selma. Many people had seen them. And the defense case here was a really interesting one. Can you tell us a little bit about what they claimed? Yeah, it's a, a really a, a kind of a <clears throat> shocking case in many ways. Uh, first of all, the the prosecutor told the told the press that he had no case, uh, despite having eyewitnesses. Very, did very little to to mount a, a strong case in the first place. Even told went so far as to tell another journalist that the only reason he he brought charges to a grand jury is because he knew that the that the national press would be all over Selma if he didn't do it. So he had very little vested interest in getting in gaining a conviction. And then the the defense attorney in this case was one of the best attorneys in in town, and he mounted a very rigorous and and really well argued, uh, despite the the problems with the claims he was making, but a well argued case that the um, not only were these not the men who did it, and he had folks come out and give alibi witnesses, even though all of them were documented to have been on the street that night. One of them was across the street during the attack, and one of them was drinking coffee over here or drinking beer over here, and they were not the guys who did it. The second part of his of his uh, of his defense, though, was the most kind of shocking, and the reason why we I think one of the primary reasons why we dug into the story as much as we did, and that is he he made the claim that the that the civil rights movement was in need of a white martyr mm. and that this this attack on Reverend Reeb provided an opportunity that he argued the civil rights movement capitalized on, that there was this incidental attack on Washington Street and that right after it happened, the civil rights movement itself realized they could they could pounce on this moment and essentially, he, he insinuated, kill Reverend Reeb to gain this white martyr that the civil rights movement needed. It's a really dynamic 
argument as as incredibly horrifying as it is to make because the the trial happened in December of 1965. The Voting Rights Act passed in the summer of 1965. So the argument about the the political necessity to have a white martyr to create the Voting Rights Act would have been very well received by a white audience who thought that that they had been bamboozled essentially by the civil rights movement. Mm. So Reeb's death at that point in December can be seen to to be almost a it's it's like a foregone conclusion that they needed this man, they got this man, and now the the Voting Rights Act has passed. It is um, al- so it's, almost unbelievable. <laughs> it is it, that it was not unbelievable to so many people in 1965 and continues to not be unbelievable to so many people today is the primary reason I think why we tried you know decided to tell this story. And 54 years later, there are still people living. Who knew Reeb? Who knew what? Ha- or who knew what happened to Reeb? Or were living in the county at that time? And and told you what they thought had happened. Here are some of the theories they shared with you today. They say, "Oh yeah, he really wasn't. It was the bad doctors or something like that." Well, you know, did he hit his head on the pavement? Slow ambulances to Birmingham. I think they killed a man on the way to Birmingham. I, I, I just will, us all always will believe it. This idea that I will always believe that they killed the man on the way to Birmingham, sacrificed one of their own to make a martyr. These are the white lies that give the podcast at its name. And so much about this is the case itself, of course, but it is about Alabama, the South, the United States at that time, and remembering the civil rights movement and Jim Crow. What have you, as sons of Alabama, learned about the way that we remember or or the collective memory, how people recount events in their minds. Yeah, I mean, that's what we spend uh, most of our waking hours talking about still as, this, as we finish up this, this this project. But I think the thing, this is Chip, and the thing that for, for me has, has, um, has really become so evident, it's something that I think we all intuit in some way, and we talk about, uh, and, it's, and we, we, we usually talk about it in the abstract, but just how little time has actually passed between 1965 and now. And for anybody born after 1965, as, as Andy and I were, um, you know, it, it, it feels like the distant past unless you've lived it. But it is not long ago at all. And the, the beliefs that people believe then are still here. They haven't been, around this specific case, they haven't been challenged. And that's why those 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 beliefs are still here. And I think on a broader level, uh, you know, that the world that we think of as that distant past is still very much with us. It's still very much here in the present. We see it every day. And I think that's this... This specific story of Jim Reeb, what happened to him, what happened after he was killed, and the sort of counter-narrative that, that was created to absolve not only the men who, who committed the crime, but the place where the crime happened, that, that is, we're, we are very good at doing that in this country. Uh, not just in the South, not just in Alabama. It's easy to think of it as, a, as, a, as an Alabama problem, as a Georgia problem, as a Southern problem, but it's an American problem. There are three episodes left, and you're producing the final episode now. What what else can listeners look forward to learning about over the course of White Lies? Well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll pull a, a, an old writer's trick, which is to say you'll have to keep reading to find <laughs> out, right? Of course. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I will say that we we would not have embarked on this project if we didn't think we could have very definitive things to say about what what really happened that night, and if we hadn't tracked down the folks to to tell that story. So I think that's the that's the promise of the show, and I I think we we pull it off. Andrew Beck Grace, thank you so much for speaking with us. 
Thank you so much. Also with us, Chip Brantley. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Andrew and Chip are co-hosts of NPR's new podcast, White Lies. For more information and to sign up to subscribe to the podcast, you can find that at gpbnews.org.